Welcome everyone to another episode of the Five Solas Podcast. I am your host, James Watkins, and this week we are continuing our tulip series on the doctrines of grace. Just to give a quick recap, our first week we discussed total depravity or radical corruption or total inability. This is the teaching that fallen man is completely touched by sin. We are not as bad as we could be, by God's grace, of course. But in all areas of our being, body, soul, spirit, mind, emotions, etc., we are touched by sin. It is an entire absence of holiness, but not the highest intensity of sin. And because we are so deeply touched by sin, we are, as natural man, unwilling and unable to come to Christ on our own. Now, last week, the teaching of unconditional election or sovereign election states that in eternity past, not by any foreseen act by us, that's important. God's election is not conditioned by anything seen in us. God chose a people to be saved. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says it perfectly. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so this week we come to a very important point within TULIP. Usually the hardest point to accept our unconditional election in our topic for today, limited atonement, or as I like to call it, particular redemption or definite atonement. And just like the last two episodes, I am not here alone. Joining me for our discussion on limited atonement slash definite atonement is someone who should be getting pretty familiar to you guys. He has joined me twice already on the topics of Christian suffering, and I guess it was just predestined that he would join me on a topic having to do with the suffering of Christ. Uh, is the good Reverend Almost Dr. Frank Mullis. Thanks for coming on, Frank. It's good to be back. You're not like Grace alone, huh? You're, you're, that's the problem. Yeah. Now... Obviously, the point that we are discussing today is very important. This has absolutely everything to do with the question of for whom did Jesus die for? So before we go any further, I want to get right into it. So Frank, can you start us out with a foundation and give us a definition of what limited atonement or definite atonement is? Well, limited atonement, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the term definite atonement probably fits it better. Uh, some people call it effective atonement, some particular atonement. It's, it's a historically reformed doctrine, and it's grounded in the intention of the triune God that in the death of Christ, his people, uh, the ones who are unconditionally elected, will be saved. And the, and the issue is, is that the death of Christ actually put away the sins of all that God unconditionally elected and ensured that regeneration would bring them to faith and preserve them to the end. So it sounds like that Jesus' suffering on the cross and his death on the cross actually had a purpose and not a potential purpose. Yeah, there, there's, no, there's no potential in Christ's death. If you think back to Isaiah, it says we might be bruised, or he might, might have been bruised for our uh, iniquities, right? I, I mean, it's, it's, he was bruised. Now, I don't think we've ever actually gone into this part of your life. They should be getting to know you a little bit right now, unfortunately to them. Uh, but I don't think we've gone this uh, to this part. But you did obtain your MDiv. You got that from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, correct? Yeah, I have an MTS, uh, a Master's of Theological Studies, and an MDiv in, uh, in, in counseling from there. So I have about uh, eight years of uh, seminary uh, and two Master's from there. And working on your doctorate right now, yeah, too. Yeah. Not from Southeastern, but I'm at uh, <laughs> Midwestern. Midwestern, yeah. Now, have you always held to the doctrines of grace? Yeah. I mean, whenever you got saved, of course. <laughs> I mean, were, were you converted and instantly Calvinistic, or was that a progress? No, it, it, I talked to the real James White about this <laughs> since you had on the fake one last week, or, or the, the other, other. I'm sorry, the other James White. 
I mean, see, that's what's great. You can always have the R. Frank Mullis Jr. on your yeah, podcast. Yeah. So I talked to the the James White about yeah. this and uh, at one of the G3 conferences, and I, I told him I, I kind of felt like I didn't get saved till I discovered the doctrines of grace. And he, he, he kind of he rebuked me on that, by the way. Um, <laughs> Good. But, but uh, there was a sense and a realization that I finally understood the gospel. And I, I, you're talking about cage stage. I was I was running wild on the campus of Southeastern. One of my pastor friends uh, who actually debated me uh, for and rebuked my Armenian ways on campus, who uh, helped me get through uh, the the cage stage. I guess uh, when I when I first came to understand it he was actually called into dr patterson's office and rebuked uh for converting me to calvinism because i was so uh wild on campus uh, converting people to uh, jc uh not jesus christ but to john calvin um so it, it was a uh, it was very radical it was 1996 and so every theological paper that i just about wrote was was on the topic of calvinism uh, every professor I challenged uh, who had some sort of anti-Calvinistic uh, slant in their in their classes, uh, it, it was a, it was I, I couldn't believe I wasn't expelled. I'll be quite honest. I was I was very much uh, should have been locked in a cage uh, those uh, first uh, two years. Well, you got a little bit of a of a double dose with me because you were around me in the sense that whenever we come out of that prosperity gospel church, so I was dealing with kind of an anger resentment issue there, and then on top of that, I was into my cage stage too. And I, I don't know if I'm fully out of my cage stage. Well, I, I, to to be honest, I I don't think you you've really been cage stage. I, I, I haven't I haven't noticed that with you. And and I, I'll I'll be honest, the issue was not as much as cage stages i was angry because i had felt that i'd been lied to about what the gospel was yeah. my whole life and that that was that was an issue now the clarification is is dog <laughs> the yeah. doctrines of grace is that the gospel well spurgeon sure says it is mm-hmm. uh, but 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 for the most part i think it's a understanding of how salvation works to a degree it's not it's not the gospel obviously uh, the gospel is has to do with the death, burial, resurrection, right. the incarnation, and uh, and the coming of Christ, and and how He fulfilled the plan of salvation through the Father. But but the issue is 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 that there are there's something through to these five points that help explain mm-hmm. the process of salvation. Shall I say it's instantaneous? Uh, uh, that's a debate that, for another topic. That's a, de- that's a debate on another topic. <laughs> Now, I actually had um, I did a I did a, one of the polls on here is believing in the doctrines of grace essential for salvation. Had about I think I think it was right around forty no's, but there were about five or six yeses, and then I had one person say they changed their vote and didn't <clears throat> vote on it because they wanted clarification on it. So the uh, after the tulip series, I'm actually going to be doing an episode on is it essential for salvation? And the question that I'm going to pose is, uh, of course, we're not saved by our the- theology. Of course, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. But that if, sounds like theology. James. It is theology, and 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 so are, are you saying if you reject the gospel? See, that's that's the point. Is at what point? I mean, you have to know some theology to be saved. Do yeah, you not you do. I mean, but there there's a, a distinction between being ignorant of something and flat out rejecting it, and then you also see the instances where people are so hostile towards the doctrines of grace. Well, and and that's the that's the issue is that I encountered many people uh, at 
at Southeastern back in the early 90s. And Calvinism is always in Southern Baptist life been look we held on to the fifth point <laughs> you know yeah, but it, really. we call it once saved always saved so that means you can be backslidden and, make and not even all not even yeah. all of them held on to yeah, that yeah, point yeah and you know i i and i really it, even even total depravity i had no issues with total depravity yeah i mean that that's that that was easy that was the easy one mm-hmm. right the unconditional election as you mentioned last week that was the one i struggled with yeah that one was one and it was basically this i couldn't understand why why i was elect right and I still don't. And that was a question that I asked uh, and you sometimes I, I wonder if, to that. I, sometimes I wonder if I am. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, and so well I don't other, think the non-elect will care about yeah, that. You know, the, issue, the issue is is I couldn't understand why he would save some and not others. That, right. that was really the issue. And, and you know why I can't understand? Because I'm not God. Um, and then you have that realization that, well, I, it's actually startling that he would save any. Right. Well, and, and, and look, he didn't, I think you mentioned it, but it's also he didn't save the angels. Nobody right. has a problem with him not saving the yeah. angels. Yeah. Oh, man. No those, problem those whatsoever. Angels, uh, to hell with those angels. Yeah, freaking Satan. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the issue is why are so many people upset about the atonement? Right. That, that's the question. I, I had no issues with limited atonement. Once I once I settled on, on unconditional election, I had no issues with the atonement. It it, it makes sense. It, it flows right into it. And that's what I was about to ask you is that in the last couple of episodes, I've said that every single point in TULIP flows from total depravity. So exactly how does the doctrine of limited atonement tie in with the doctrines of total depravity and unconditional election? The issue is if, if we are dead in our trespasses and sin, we, we all fell in Adam. You know, I, I hold to the federal headship of Adam is that we fell in Adam. And, and I think um, the gentleman last week, he, he said, look, we, we wouldn't, or it might have been two weeks ago, um, the other James White. Yeah, two uh, weeks ago. He, he said it, it, we might have not have done as well a job as Adam did. We might have fallen a lot quicker than Adam. The issue is that I believe that we do affirm our own sinfulness. Mm-hmm. I, and I, and I, I hold the Augustinian view of, of sin, too. I think that, that it is passed genetically. I, I think there mm-hmm. is something to that. So I, I don't have a problem with, with people saying that we are fallen in Adam, and I don't have a problem saying that, hey, we're, we're, we're born in sin, you know, from when it's passed right. genetically. I don't, I don't have a problem with that either because I think it, it touches the, our core, our very core being. Uh, and we're not, you know, we're not ultra-depraved. I mean, I don't think that we are as bad as we could be. Right. Um, so the difference between totally depraved and utterly depraved. Utterly depraved, yeah, exactly. And so the the election is that if if it hadn't been for election, nobody would be saved. We'd be like the angels. Right. That And, and I don't think there's any—the only difference between us and the fallen angels is he chose to save us. That's the only difference. He chose to save us. And we, like the angels— would choose not to. And he's given us the ability, and, and of course, that T-U-L-I-P, yeah. <laughs> so it, is, it was with without that without that I, and I believe you're discussing that next week, right? Yep, yep. Uh, without that I, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have the ability to do that. So Christ had to, um, and, and I can't say he had to. <laughs> right. <laughs> he chose to. Willingly. You know, willingly to, to die for his children. All right, guys. Well, we have gotten some very good information right now. I think we got a good, firm foundation right now. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break, and then we are going to get biblical. We'll be right back with you after this quick break. Hey, I'm Daryl, and I'm here with my wife, Karen. What's up? And we're the host of the What Are We Even Doing Here podcast, the podcast that seeks to answer the question that we all asked, what are we even doing here? We cover topics such as marriage, family, life, and living a Christian life in this crazy world. 
We don't have all the answers, but we know where to look. Subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud as we seek the kingdom of God and find out what we are even doing here. Grace and peace. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Five Souls Podcast. I am still here with the Reverend, good Reverend, almost Dr. Frank Mullis, and we are covering the topic of limited atonement. We set a foundation with the definition of it. But, Frank, I think there's a lot more to it that we really need to break down. So let's break it down a little bit more as far as the atonement goes, and then let's jump into the scriptures. Sure. Let's talk about uh, the Greek, which I have got. A, I finally got a passing grade after my third attempt. <laughs> In, in the in the good Greek, so so uh, I I know Greek uh, at least the uh, it doesn't like squiggly yeah, lines. Yeah, I, yeah, that's why I couldn't do Hebrew, man. But um, depending on how you pronounce the the Greek word that's translated in the King James as atonement, but reconciliation in other places, katalage or katalage or ever how you want to pronounce the Greek. The question is, we like that word atonement, but we we you, you don't hear the Armenians using the term reconciliation no, very much. They don't. They like saying, oh, he he died for every. But did he reconcile everyone? Right. That, that's really the question. Did Christ's death reconcile every individual to God when he died? No, because if that was the case, then everyone would be saved. Yeah, and 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 the Armenians they have to they have to scoot around to keep from delving into universalism. Yeah, really but I do. mean that's starting to grow though. Universalism is, is starting to grow pretty rampant, along with open theism and in, yes. in the inconsistencies that flow from uh, man's free will. So we're seeing rises in that. They all flow from each other. So the issue is, is that there, look, there's many verses in the Bible that seem to show that Christ did indeed die for the whole world, is or not? Right. There, there, there seems to be. Right, right. On, on the glance, the Armenians they do have they do have a quote unquote biblical argument. So, however, there are also many verses that point to the atonement being limited in scope, such as a ransom for mm-hmm. many. For for many. <laughs> so, but let's start with John. I'm sorry. With uh, well, we can look at John fifteen thirteen. Christ laid down his life for who? His friends, uh, and then uh, that you're only his friend if you obey his commands. Since the elect are the only ones who actually. Right. Obey the commands. We maintain that his death was limited to his friends or the elect. So we jump now to Matthew one twenty one, and she will bring forth a son, and she shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people, his people from their sins. Now, does that mean the Jews? Does that does that mean uh, the Gentiles? How about John ten fifteen? Maintains that Christ laid down his life for his sheep. sheep. There you go. Bye. But who are the sheep? I mean, obviously, there's goats. Notice he didn't say, "I lay down mm-hmm. my life for the sheep and the goats." Right. Why if, for the sheep? If if it was if he was laying down his life for everyone, he would have had to have said sheep and what goats and goats. But we see the Armenians; they don't they don't deal with the verses like that. Right. And you and I were kind of talking about this the other day. Is that really this becomes an issue in hermeneutics and biblical interpretation? And I think we're going to get a little bit more into that uh, whenever we go into maybe some of the other side's claims on it, uh, such as their interpretation of the word world, uh, the word all. So I think we're going to get into that. But I mean, there's plenty. Uh, I mean, I'm looking kind of at your notes right now. And I mean, you have a ton of uh, scripture over there. Well, this came from my uh, 20, I think it was like a 26 page paper I wrote uh, t- over 20 years ago. In seminary. Uh, so as I said, you know, I, one of my first papers I wrote in systematic theology was on limited atonement and did John Calvin teach limited atonement? Right. That, that's that's one a big of, question. There. And, that, and that's, that's a big question. And I, I think I showed that he might not have taught it in the same way as the latter reformers. 
Right. But uh, he definitely didn't teach Armenian <laughs> atonement. Right. And and I think this is a, a point. Uh, limited atonement seems to be a hang-up even for professing Calvinists. You hear uh, you hear a four-point Calvinist, and it's no, usually that's, the there's L. there's no such thing. Yeah, it's an inconsistent yeah. Armenian? Well, is that what it is? No, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lost... No, I'm not... <laughs> no. Um, what, what, uh, what, you know, the Amaraldian is what most, most of the time the four-point Calvinists are called Amaraldians. Right. It was Amaraldius, I think, a French guy who who came up with this idea of i think that the way they do it is it is sufficient for all and efficient for, for the, the elect. elect yeah and and i was and i always respond yeah sufficiently saves no one then yeah it does and and that's really the issue and that goes back to the question today of for whom did christ die uh, and and look I, I point out is that look acts twenty twenty eight maintains that god purchased his church with his blood right so who is the church? We don't let non-believers in the right. church. Right. Right. Membership is for who? The believer. Mm-hmm. And so, look, let's let's go to John 3.16. That, that's the verse that, John 3.16. Whosoever. Whosoever. <laughs> yeah. it, it, so, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten and, son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And, and notice, it, it, even that is limited. It is. It's, it's limited to the believing. Believes. And the Greek actually renders it the believing ones. The believing the ones. read. Well, and, and look, does it say he died for the whole world? No. And that's really the issue is how you are applying the, the, the word world there, which is uh, cosmos, right? Yeah. In this way, God loved the world. Right. That, that he, he gave, gave his, his only son, son. son to save those who believe. Right. How about uh, Matthew twenty twenty eight? Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for who? Many. Many. Now, look, I can make all mm-hmm. limited. Yes, you can. I can say all of us in this room, <laughs> right? You and I, right? Right. But and, I can't. But I can't make many mean all. Right. So this this is my question. I think this right here is going to get a little deep because whenever we are presenting the gospel to people, is we we hear it all the time with evangelists who will say that. Christ died for your sins is they seem to make it a universal atonement whenever they're evangelizing the people. So exactly how should we word this whenever we are telling someone that they need to place their faith in Jesus Christ? Of course, we have a need for it, but we know they can't unless it's granted by God. Well, here's the thing. The Armenians always come at us with emotion on this. Oh, so what do you tell them? God might love you. Yeah. And (laughs) And, it really becomes a straw man. Or, or Christ might've died for you. Right. Well, Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> he might yeah. have, but but the issue is, I would I would say that Christ gave his life for his children. Right, he gave his life for his sheep because I can still be biblical with that. Mm-hmm. You know, he gave his life for his people. I mean, I, I usually say it just as this worded there that Christ came, came uh, suffered and died on the cross, gave his life as a ransom for many. I mean, that's the biblical text. And you might be one of the many. Correct. I'm not sitting there telling someone that Christ died for your sins, and this person never places their faith in Christ alone, but yet he died for their sins. That's confusing. Well, that's why you say Christ might have died for your sins. And I really do not see anything (laughs) wrong with this. Uh, (laughs) Because, look, if you don't believe, John 3.16 says you won't be saved. Right. 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 So so the issue is, just as he gave his life a ransom memory, Hebrews 9.28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of all? Many. No, no, it doesn't say all. It says the sins of many. So what, what do you do with that? To those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Look, he gave his life a ransom 
for his elect, his children. Look, there's something emotional. We let emotions dictate our theology when it comes to the atonement. Now, also, I think that what we typically see is that in the same way that they try to make world or or the word all be every single person without exception is we also see them try to do this with the word many uh, going back to Hebrew. So I'm kind of looking at your uh, your notes right here, and that's what you're wanting to cover next. So what what exactly is it? What does the word many mean? So when I, when I was at uh, Southeastern, uh, I had a professor. He's at Midwestern now, a professor of Hebrews, and he was uh, he's an Armenian, by the way. But but I asked him the question, you know, about what does um, the many mean? And here's what he said. He states that though the term many in the Hebrew thought does not mean an unspecified number, it does not imply the universal intent of every single individual in the world. Thus, the verse is limited in number. Then I talked to Dr. Uh, Fred Williams. He's a professor of linguistics back then. He maintains that the Hebrew word many shows the English shows that the English equivalent for that word is the same. Therefore, the word many should not be preached with the intent that every single individual was ransomed. We must therefore maintain that many cannot possibly mean every single individual ever born. So pretty much what you're saying right now is that Christ died for his church and for his sheep. Yeah, the scriptural argument maintains that Christ died for his children, his people, his sheep, his friends, his church, and for the many who make up God's elect, not every single person ever born. And look, we, we end up, if they were reconciled, then we end up in universalism. If, yeah. if we're saying the atonement means reconciliation. In the way that the word's actually... The, the word's actually rendered. Now, look, don't, don't get me wrong. The Armenians have a logical argument against this. I'm not saying they don't. They, they obviously do. Um, I informally debated Dr. Norman Geisler. Uh, ah. uh, <laughs> Are you the reason he w- wrote Chosen But Free? Uh, well, I understand why he wrote Chosen But Free. So I, I was at an apologetics conference, and I was in line uh, to meet him. And at, at that time, when, you know, I was leaning heavily toward, I wasn't evidential, but I was, I was somewhere in classical. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm obviously I'm more presup now than I, right. than I was early on, and mainly because uh, the Calvinism that I learned was the R.C. Sproul, right. you know, uh, who was teaching the Calvinism. Because obviously, very few people at, at Southeastern Seminary was teaching it. Right. So, <laughs> so I bought and purchased everything R.C. Sproul ever produced during that time period, and so much of my Calvinism. And he was a classical in his apologetics, and the presup guys they were they were Clarkian, and so. I, I wasn't a big fan of uh, Gordon H. Clark. Yeah. So the the issue is meeting and going to Norman Geisler's uh, apologetics conference. I was waiting in line to meet him, and there was this lady in front of him, and our our friend uh, Doctor uh, Tom Price. He was with me, mm-hmm. and uh, he was he was behind me. And this lady was talking to him about yeah, these people in my church they're they're teaching they're teaching this stuff called Calvinism. And I, I need to know, is it a cult? <laughs> and Doc, We get accused of that, don't we? And Dr. Geisler didn't shut her down that it was a cult immediately. Mm. And he started him and hawing to her about, you know, how Calvinism, some of Calvinistic teachings can seem cult-like. And I was like, wait a minute, Dr. Geisler. I said, you're not implying that Calvinism is a cult. And he started backtracking just a little bit. And I said, look, so are you saying Edwards and Calvin and, and, and Luther and, 
and all of the the reformers and Jonathan Edwards, all these people were, were in a cult, mm-hmm. you know. And, and so he started backtracking. And then one of his uh, students, who's a very famous apologist now, uh, he he started at me, and um, I went at him back with some scripture. And the issue basically came out with with Dr. Geisler is that, look, here, here's the thing. These verses, this is what he said, these verses do not offer exclusive proof that Christ just died for his people, his sheep, his friends, his church. These verses only show that he died for this group. And that's what his argument was. He died for this group, just like he died for for Jews and he died for Gentiles or he died for uh, the church or he's so he's just he's just going through and saying different groups okay so he died for the group of goats yes he died <laughs> yeah he, so it was just showing that he was dying for different groups that, that's the purpose of these verses obviously but th- these verses don't really say that but i right, mean that's right. that's how you have to that's how you can logically make the argument exegetically i don't think you can make the argument but logically he makes the argument and of course you've read his if you, I, yeah. I refuse to read his book. Yeah, but. I read that. Um, actually, I, I, I read Chosen but Free. I've read Potter's Freedom, which I think that Potter's Freedom by James White was a response to Chosen but Free. Um, so it, it, to in in my opinion, and I might be a little biased because of the the theology that I lean towards is that it absolutely destroyed Norman Geisler's view. So let's uh, let's talk about that a little bit more because, like you said, they do have a quote unquote case from scripture that they make. I mean, obviously they go to John 3, 16, 2 Peter 3, 9. Uh, we talked about verses in 1 Timothy, uh, 1 John that imply maybe that Christ was a propitiation for not only our sins, but for the whole world, yeah. things like that. And and the, you do seem to have some all verses mm-hmm. uh, that are there. William J., uh, he calls them the torments of Calvinism. Yeah. There are many passages which use universal terms such as all in world and these passages, you know, argument should be taken and interpreted in the light of the context of the meaning. That's the problem. And not in light of the other scriptures that contradict right. them. Look, right. look we, if we start with a basic premise, scripture does not contradict. Mm-hmm. So if we're, we say that there's limited verses and there's universal verses uh, of the atonement, that's how the Armenians, they'll go back and say, see, it's groups. Right. And, and they want to make all. But, you know, here, here's the argument. The passages which seem to indicate that Christ died for the whole world can be interpreted. Look, let's talk about three ways. The Armenians have a um, an argument that the Greek word used for the world, the word cosmos, that they want to say it means the whole world mm-hmm. in, in the sense. But first, I want to point out the term was used, the world usually does not mean every single individual in the world. Here's an example, Luke 2.1, Caesar Augustus taxed the... Yeah, the, the the world. Yeah, the the whole world. Really, yeah. I don't think the Eskimos in Alaska or the or the Japanese right. in Japan were getting taxed. Yeah. That yeah. Day. Well, then you also have verses where it's speaking of uh, if the world hated me, the world will hate you. Well, Jesus was confined to a very specific area. I mean, it's not literally the entire world without exception that he's referring to at that time. Second, Scripture teaches that Christ died to secure salvation, not to just make it possible. Did he secure it, or did he make it possible? And and I want to point this out. If salvation is only possible, then it is possible for no one to be saved. Right. It's possible that Jesus died for absolutely no one. Or for nothing. That right. he was tortured for nothing. Right. That he actually wasted drops of his blood. And I think that could be borderline blasphemous. Well, there, the dying the dying for the world, if this is true, would mean that all the people are saved, which goes against the teaching of Scripture. The world often means the nations as a whole 
or both Jew and Gentile. Mm-hmm. It sometimes refers to all who place faith in Christ as well. Right. So the issue is, is and, and I think you just said it, is I don't believe that there was one drop wasted on, on an unbeliever. Right. All right, everyone. Well, we are still getting some great information. We have a lot more left to go, but we are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with you. Andrew Rappaport's Rap Report is a podcast providing biblical interpretations and applications. It is a ministry of striving for eternity and part of the Christian podcast community. We provide a biblical view of cultural events, discuss how to apply God's word to the Christian life, address issues that concern the church, and we even take some time to offer a correct understanding of those commonly misinterpreted passages of scripture. You will hear from great guests like Justin Peters, Todd Friel, Jay Warren Wallace, and Gabe Hughes. Andrew has the Rap Report Daily, which is a two-minute Monday through Friday podcast, and then the longer Rap Report podcast for more content. Subscribe to both today by searching for Rap Report on any podcast app, spelled R-A-P-P, Report, or click the podcast link at strivingforeternity.org. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Five Souls Podcast. This is James Watkins, and I am still here with Reverend Frank Mullis, and we are discussing the atonement of Christ, the definite atonement, uh, where we do not believe that Christ wasted a single drop of blood to atone for his elect. So we are in conversation right now about some of the scriptural proof that the other side uses to to promote a universal atonement. And Frank, let's go to uh, Romans 5.18 starting out. That's a, that's a big one usually. And there, there are a few more that we can talk about, of course. But therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So at face value, if you're going to hold to that, you really have to be a universalist. Well, they, they make this argument because, look, we all died in, in Adam, right? The elect and the non-elect, right? The right. sheep and the goats both died all in Adam. So they're, they're going to turn and make that all also apply to the atonement. If, he, if Adam, you know, sin affected all, why does Christ's atonement not affect all? Well, I'll make the argument, yes, it does affect you. <laughs> it's going to be held against you. <laughs> you know, so I, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not saying that uh, there's not some, look, there's benefits to the atonement for all. Right. Is there not? The very fact I'm a Christian and I am living a life uh, for Christ, there are things that I do for non-elect people because mm-hmm. Christ lives in me right. that's affecting them because of the atonement. Right. Uh, the Christians around, imagine if Christianity ceased to exist in this world like many won't. Right. You would have a rampant rise in a lot of atrocities and evil, I would argue. I would too. And so, so yes, it does, it does affect all, but it does not save anyone but but the elect so let's talk about all all is used many times like the word world which its context must determine all does not always mean every single individual ever born Uh, second many times in the bible the word all means all of some kinds as in romans 5 18 when it speaks of justification of all men this, of course, cannot mean all-inclusive of every single person, but all believers. Third, many times the word all refers to many kinds, as in 1 Timothy 2.1, that prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving may be made on behalf of all men. So who's he talking about there? He was referring to all that he was speaking to. The following verse makes it clear that Paul's not referring to every single individual person who ever lived, but all kinds of men, right. especially those who are in authority. Right, and you did a sermon on that um, not too long back whenever we were going through the pastoral epistles, right. uh, going through Titus and First and Second Timothy, and 
that honestly, it was one of the better explanations that I had seen because I, you know, of course you get on Facebook or something, you see people arguing over Calvinism, Arminianism, and this is for the one in first Timothy is typically the verse that is used to, uh, to really talk about the atonement and how it's a universal atonement. And honestly, I really haven't seen many deal with the text from an exegetical standpoint in that manner in that it's not necessarily referring to all without exception. There's a reason why he lists groups of people. Groups of people. Exactly. Well, look, every tribe, tongue, and nation that is mentioned in the book of Revelation is there. All nations are representative, but not all individuals right. from those nations. Now, and then you can also move on to uh, verses, and, and we talked about this one last week, and I think we broke it down a little bit, but Second Peter 3, 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we discussed last week that really, if you look at the context in which it's being written, you have to go back to first Peter written to the same group. And it's actually speaking to the elect exiles, which, (laughs) (laughs) well, look, he he is exactly right. He doesn't desire any of his elect to be lost and none of them will. Right. Right. Look, he came to save his sheep and, and he says what none should be what? Right. Well, none of them will be snatched from his hands, for one, him. and he'll you know, lose none but raise them up on the last I, day. If I may mention, Justin Peters, and I told him I would steal this illustration, but I'm not. <laughs> Is it stealing if you <laughs> let him know you're going to do yeah, it? Yeah, so it maybe. I don't know. But but in speaking of that, that which you were talking about, is that speaking of his hands, mm-hmm. they're, they're cupped in his hands, and then they're cupped in the Father's hands. So it, it, if, you, if, you, if it was possible to escape... You know, the son's hand is impossible to escape the father's hands, too. I, and then you got to break the seal of the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Yes. <laughs> so there's several difficult passages, obviously, that we, we go through. I, but I will still make the argument is that the Armenians have the, the, the harder argument to mm-hmm. explain the limited verses. Right. So, so verses such as a ransom for many, it's very, very difficult, if not flat out impossible, to make that word really mean all without exception. Well, let's talk about uh, Hebrews ten twenty six through 29 and, and 2 Peter 2, 1. There's several different interpretations of these verses. First, let's talk about those in Hebrews that trample Christ underfoot are like those in the parable of the sower who profess Christ for a while and then reject him, which shows that they were not what? True believers. Example, those who went out from us were not of us. Were not of us. Second, another impossible interpretation is that the word he in the phrase he was sanctified is referring to Christ, not an apostate man. That in the case, the person who is renouncing both the Son and the Spirit were never sanctified and never were the objects of Christ's death. Third, many theologians interpret um, the passage, uh, again, Hebrews 10, 26, 29, that's hypothetical. The passage argue that none whom Christ died for falls away. That that's basically, you know, you're going to deal with those passages when you get to perseverance of the yeah. saints, obviously. specifically ones like Hebrews six, where yeah, it talks Hebrews, about those who were once yes, enlightened and, and so forth. So, you know, example is, is that Christ died for some who will ultimately perish as in Romans 14, 15 and first Corinthians eight eleven. These passages are merely showing that doing some sins could lead a w- weaker brother or sister to mm-hmm. sin. So we're not talking about, in the in this sense, the atonement, speaking of Christ dying for the elect, in that we have to deal with these verses in the same way as, right. as we deal with those other passages. 
How about 2 Peter 2, 1? This is probably the one that they would argue has the strongest evidence for the case of universal atonement. Um, they have a logical scriptural argument. The Greek word used for bought does mean purchased. If they interpret Lord as Christ, it would mean that Christ bought these false prophets. Right. 2 Peter 2, 1. You want to read 2 Peter 2, 1? Uh, yeah, 2 Peter 2, 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And we'll stop there at 2 Peter 2, 1. That flows into right. verse 2. So, as I said, this is the, the probably one of the most difficult verses that we, we deal with as, as Calvinists on, on mm-hmm. atonement because the Greek word, as I said, used for bought does mean purchased. So as we look here, second Peter two, one is extremely difficult, but several different interpretations have been offered to show that Christ did not die for false teachers who are not regenerated. Right. So let's talk. Well, about I mean, this. you even have to go to, uh, to the apostle Paul, whenever he's writing to the churches in Galatia, I mean, he pretty much says that any other gospel, you're anathema, which is damned. You can argue that the false teachers are redeemed in outward appearance. Mm-hmm. Look, when does the, when does the wheat and the tares, separate when when do the <laughs> when do the wheat and tares separate at the end right yeah, at the end when when do the sheep and the goats separate at the end right mm-hmm. so if you have a church full of people there are, there are many people that i have believed that were saved and by their fruit and their actions i've come to believe that i was wrong to have believed that yeah you know, I've seen uh i've seen somebody post on uh in one of the groups that i'm in this week asking for prayer it's like the person that she said shared the gospel with her and she was converted under their teaching. They're posting on Facebook and all now that they are atheistic. And I mean, I can only imagine that kind of shot that coming from that. I mean, somebody that's displaying that kind of fruit to. And I mean, I guess that just goes to show the providence of God that he can use those teachers despite that. Well, they're, they're Lord, Lord. Yeah. Did I not do this and that and the other? And they're going to be people that are going to be quite surprised. Uh, on on the, on judgment day that they are not among the elect. Right. So how about this? Second, the redemption is their own false opinion, as is their teaching. In other words, there are people who believe that they are saved who are not. And those are the hardest people to evangelize to. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> Third, all who pro- profess the doctrine of salvation must be given the benefit of the doubt, since man cannot know the heart, right. which only God can. Right. Now, now, obviously, if they're false teachers now, Right, that, that, that's a little easy to distinguish. There, easy, easily to distinguish, but there are some, you know, there are some, and dare dare I name some names of people who I question their teaching, but I don't want to say that they're lost, but they're riding the border. <laughs> now, at at what point, and maybe this is going off the rails a little bit, and uh, but at what point in and what method can somebody have the assurance that, okay, I'm of the elect and Christ did indeed die for me? Well, Al Mohler just, uh, you know, he posted this article about the Apostles' Creed. Mm-hmm. You know, that is the minimalist. Yeah. The the minimum is the Apostles' Creed. And of course, you can believe more, but the minimal is the, the Apostles' Creed. And so what do you do when people start questioning the virgin birth? Right. What do yeah. you do when people start questioning hell? What what do you do? I mean, there are people who would immediately say he's lost. I would say pretty close. I would heavily talk to some of my friends about about it. Should I hold uh, meals with them? Right. 
the scripture the scripture does not have a problem with us uh, supping <laughs> yeah. uh, with with lost people. Uh, there, there's no Jesus sup with lost people, mm-hmm. right? The question is, where do we sit with those who are universalist? Right. Those who you know start moving uh, that they don't believe in hell or they don't believe in uh, the virgin birth. You know, they they possess uh, they possess a lot of the things that Christians the enlightenment that yeah, possibly is spoken that, of that, in Hebrews yeah. six. Yeah, they're, they're enlightened. And and again, it's not is it is it my place to make that judgment? If I'm their pastor, yes. Yeah. Because I I would make that argument. Um, you you've got to you've got to show me from the scriptures why you don't believe in the virgin birth. You've got to show me from the scriptures why you don't believe in the doctrine. Is it ignorance? Is it the yeah. ignorance of the scripture, or are you saying? Look, yeah, I know it teaches it, but I don't believe it. That's so a, that, it becomes a sufficiency of Scripture. It's a, yeah, it, it definitely does. Fourth, we took go back to the false teachers. Peter is comparing the false teachers with the false prophets in Deuteronomy thirty-two six, in which Moses is rebuking rebellious Jews who were bought by God the Father. Yeah. The Greek word for Lord used by Peter is not kurios, um, and, and his title used for Christ, but the word despots. A word meaning absolute ownership as of a master who purchased slave. The term is often interpreted as God the Father. Mm-hmm. This interpretation would mean Peter was referring to the false teachers. The Jewish false teachers of this day were like those false teachers in the days of Moses who denied God the Father who bought them. Okay. Well, that right there is definitely something. Uh, again, like you said, that that verse in Second Peter is one that seems to be kind of a an Achilles heel. To those who uh, who haven't done yeah, the but, studies but, on that, but but again, exegetically, you can make the argument. And again, Peter Peter's writing to the elect, <laughs> yeah, to the elect, to the elect exiles. And and you know, I, I want to point again. I, I want to keep reiterating this. I think you have your five points <laughs> at the end, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Are we not going to do the five? We're points? We're not going to do the five I'm points today. You I'm, under, I'm throwing you under the bus now, <laughs> that's right? Fine. Uh, after you threw me under the bus. But I am writing a blog <laughs> on the limited atonement with the five points. In oh, that. okay. So, <laughs> so look, I'm out from under the bus. Okay. He died to save, not to make it only possible. Look, he, he died to save, not to make it only possible. He died to save, actually save. It was definite. He didn't die to make it possible. If clear scriptures are allowed to take precedent over obscure, if your theology is going to be based on, on Peter there, 2-1, I mean, yeah. if, if that's that, yeah. th- there's a problem. You have the, the Armenians have no foundation for asserting that Christ's atonement makes salvation only possible for every single person. Right. He died to save, not to make it possible. The problem passages are not problems at all when taken in the context of the entire Bible. Right. So here, here, going back to, going back to my conversion to, to Calvinism. I was talking to my wife Rosalind, and we were talking, and I was struggling. I mean, I, I was, I was weeping over this. Yeah. Um, especially the doctrine of election. I relate. And so I, I took, I said, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go buy a Bible, and I bought a brand new Bible. And I said, look, I'm going to have some markers, and I'm going to have uh, a yellow marker for the Armenian verses, and I'm going to have a um, I'm going to have a blue marker for the Calvinistic verses. And your Bible was almost entirely uh, blue, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I went through every uh, every verse that Calvinism um, had for each of its points. I went with the marker for the Armenian verses, and I went through. And as I said, my Bible was predominantly predominantly blue. 
And then, of course, the yellow were these few verses that were there and they were easily reconciled. It's, it's like I said, I can make I couldn't make many mean all, but I could make all mean many. Right. And, that, and that's what really got me uh, with this. Now, how long were you? Um, I, I know that you said that you had a better understanding of the gospel whenever you come to the doctrines of grace. But how long had you been saved before you come to the acceptance of the doctrines? I, I, look, I, I'm, I think Colleen Sharp says, you know, the, I, I remember being saved. I really don't remember being lost. You don't remember? I got you. I, I'm, yeah. I, I, mean, I think John MacArthur makes that same kind of distinguishment. You know, I, I was, you know, I remember not going to church. You know, I got I got involved in church probably when I was seven or eight years old at a Baptist church, obviously SBC, mm-hmm. and you know it kind of got my mom and dad and and uh, this my mother's side of the family they're all Pentecostal holiness so yeah. I grew up around not only grew up around the gifts with um, with continuationists but I, I grew up strong strong Armenian mm-hmm. with strong Armenian roots and the church church I was involved in was charismatic. It was, they would have been in AR now. I'm sure if that church is still going, we've yeah. been playing Beltha one hill song and, oh, yeah. and, and well, all even Baptist things. churches are doing that. Well, now. yes. <laughs> um, but, but it, um, it, it went from that. I, I remember the first time I was, um, about the ninth or 10th grade and I was, um, something came up about predestination. Uh, and one of our Sunday school teachers, he looked at me and he says, yeah, you're predestined if you're saved. And I got all angry. <laughs> I, I remember getting angry. I was like, what do you mean predestined? They're not predestined. I'm not a robot. <laughs> we talked about that last week. Go back <laughs> and, to the and, unconditional election episode. <laughs> um, I'm not a robot. My libertarian free will. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, so, I mean, what would you say? I mean, honestly, and that's what we were talking about last week, is that maybe for those who have grown up churched, I guess is the word, that's, is that it's, and, it's really hard. And, and, and this, this here's the thing. What I have found is that those who are, quote-unquote, radically saved, mm-hmm. it is very easy for them to understand Calvinism. Yeah. It is yeah. very difficult for people like me who grew up in the church in an Armenian way to say, I wasn't that bad of a person. Right. I, I was, oh, man, I was holy. Yeah. You know, I, I was holy. I, I, didn't, I didn't do, quote-unquote, I didn't do the things that everybody else was doing. I was... You know, I, I started preaching very bad sermons at the age of like twelve or thirteen on Youth Sunday. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, I've got some terrible, terrible sermons. Uh, I'm glad they are were they hand- saved in Dropbox. No, they're not saved. In, <laughs> well, they might be some of my, my some of my sermons that are like that. But you know, I've got handwritten sermons. I think I burned them that were just terrible, topical Armenian free will. Uh, sermons probably even up to you know when I was a youth minister before I went to seminary. You know, I I was doing youth ministry from the age of eighteen all the way till till seminary ninety six. I was doing some sort of youth ministry, and it was very very much the sinner's prayer, all yeah. of these things, and Christ died for everybody, and you just gotta you just gotta believe. Yeah, you know, you just gotta really mean it in your heart. You yeah. just gotta mean it. So you were you were you were in what seems like has become rampant in the. Uh, is a contributing factor to the false conversions within the church. Um, 
which, which you spoke about the radical conversions is myself, Steve yes. Ledwith, a friend of ours. Uh, he was saved very radically as well. And I believe both of us uh, were, were atheists. Uh, yeah, we were atheistic and both of us converted. Now, I don't want to say converted, but both of us recognized the truths of the doctrines of grace pretty quickly after very our quickly. Conversion, conversion. With Steve, Le- uh, Steve Ledwith, and he's not going to listen to your podcast because I know Steve anyway. Yeah. But, uh, he Get a new job. To, yeah. He, uh, Steve, I remember Steve calling me, uh, when I was in one of my groups and I was like, this must be important for Steve calling me this time of day. And I stepped out and he says, says, you're a pastor, right? And I was like, yeah. He goes, I want to know how to be saved. And I was like, I'm going to have to call you back. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, I had an hour drive right after that group. And I was like, what do you mean you want to be saved? Well, I, I want to know. I want to know about this Jesus thing, and so I said, "I tell you what, uh, let's meet this Saturday at my martial arts school. We're going. We're going to. Uh, you. You will do a private lesson. Uh, Steve's a. He loves me saying this. One of the best knife fighters in the world, and he fights lots of knives. Uh, but anyway, we did a private lesson, and I brought him book after book after book. And here's one of the things I, I believe about the elect is that they're going to get saved. Yeah, absolutely. Not one will be lost. (laughs) And so I said, look, if I can talk him out of wanting to be saved, then he's not one of the elect, (laughs) right? So and I, and I mean you're talking about Steve. I mean he was into like the Wiccan stuff as uh, well. Well, he wasn't Wiccan. He was. He well, was, he grew he, he grew he up was, around he, well, that. His mother, you know, he's got an incredible testimony. One day I hope you get him on here so people can hear what an amazing testimony he I has. I will. I've got to drive down about an hour and twenty minutes yeah. and meet him, but I will. But uh, anyway, my goal was to talk him out of out of um, being saved. And a lot of people, are, well, you did what? Yeah, I could I could we could have said a magical prayer, you know, and yeah. and 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 he'd be saved. No, I gave him a bunch of books, and I said, "Look, man, Christianity's difficult. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, you got to take up your cross. I mean, Christianity is hard. Is this really something you want? Yeah. And if he wanted it, it was only because God wanted him to have it, right? And so right. we took him. You know, um, I took him these books. He studied these books, and you know, I won't give away his, his entire testimony, but you know, he, he's, he's he was radically saved, and 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 Calvinism was easy for him. Yeah. Uh, it was easy for me, you know, I'm fighting it. Yeah. Well, I fought it, but you know, my hangup was like you said, between the unconditional election and the limited atonement, limited atonement. Once that, once the unconditional election clicked with me, it was easy. My hangup was with unconditional election and the why, why would God predestine me? Not this person. Why am, why would God predestine me? I'm still wondering why he predestined you. Um, yeah, I do but, too, every day. Um, <laughs> but look, the Bible either is one. Is, I guess I don't know if there's a third option. You know, it's limited atonement or it's universal. I think right. it's either or. I don't think it can't be both and. Well, the the Lutherans actually I had a guy on there commenting on there saying that it's neither. It's so, neither. It's neither. And mm-hmm. I was sitting, I was like, I really don't want to get into that. <laughs> it, it, well, there's there's not one. I guess right. that's the third option. There's yeah. not one. I, I think there the Latin is tertium quid. I put that in my to make it sound smart in, <laughs> in my paper, uh, and I did get an A by the way. And the professor is a four point Calvinist. Minus. Um, uh, <laughs> The Bible cannot maintain both views at the same time and in the same sense. Right. It, right. it just can't. It would violate the law of contradiction. But, look, we're, we're not applying logical here. You know, that's one of the big the big attacks against Calvinism. It's a logical system, not a biblical one. And I was God like, is logical, right? Uh, yeah, well, you know, 
Look, it's not like theologians didn't study the Bible and then come up with their theology. Right. That, that's that's the they came up with their theology and then studied the Bible. No, that would be incredibly difficult. It would be incredibly <laughs> difficult. You know, um, I guess if you were a pagan and then studied the Bible, you yeah. could you could read your yeah. paganism in the Bible. Because look, I, I've got a friend who believes that the Bible only teaches God is love. And <laughs> that's and, an issue. And 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 that's an issue. Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. So. <laughs> flood <laughs> it's not like we're only applying logics we're, we're applying hermeneutical principles right and we are logically implying hermeneutical principles to scripture and our interpretation of scripture i believe to be true in regards to the atonement right and it really seems like a, a big theme of this uh, in light of the verses that we went over that speak of the limited atonement or the definite atonement particular redemption of god's elect versus the verses that are that are seemingly speaking of a universal atonement is that really the theme behind this is that you really have to let scripture interpret scripture. J.I. Packer, he argues that Arminians only maintained that they could not have gained their salvation without Calvary. While the Calvinist maintains that Christ secured and gained their salvation at Calvary. The Bible declares that the cross of Christ actually purchased salvation. First Corinthians declares we were bought with a price. What was the price? His atonement. Arminians only believe that Christ made salvation possible for all men, not guaranteeing it for anyone. How about this? I'm going to I'm going to argue Arminians limit the atonement, not the Calvinist. I could agree with that. When Calvin Calvinists use the term limited, they don't mean that the atonement is limited in the power to save. That's right. what they do. Right. They believe that the power of Christ's death is unlimited and the atonement is infinite in its value. They do not believe that though it was unlimited in scope but limited in, in efficacy, Christ intended to save only a certain number, not the entire human race. Right. And that flows into why we prefer the yeah. terms definite atonement or particular Ar- Armenians. Arminians leave God a failure, did he not? If he yeah. intended to save everyone and he did not save them, then God is a failure. Yeah. And, you know, we uh, we talked about this a little bit last week. We didn't get into as much detail as I wanted to, but whenever it comes to God's election, is that typically an argument made for it is that God let down the corridors of time. He elected who? those that he elected those who w- he foreseen would have faith. Here's the thing, though, is that if you're applying a universal atonement, is this is very, very inconsistent, is that you have Christ dying on the cross for people he foreseen would never come to faith in the first place. Well, but he's still trying to save them to this day. Here's when I start playing mind games like the like the Armenians do and I asked him the question I said okay so when he looks down the corridor of time and sees those who place faith in him those are the ones okay so are there anyone else going to be saved than he already knows are going to be saved no so he can't overcome their free will yeah he can't ever but how about how about this one this I'll, I'll mind I'll, I'll mess with their minds a little bit more I said look is it possible that the only children that God ever lets be born are those that he would know would freely choose him then I mean yeah there are many children there are many children who uh, are never born, why not let those be the ones who would not freely choose them? And then nobody would go to hell. Right. If if that's God's intent is not to let any perish, then why in the world? If And, of course, we got to know that Armenians, all, all Armenians without exception, I believe, believe that all babies go to heaven. Yeah. Right? So why not? <laughs> if we're if we're we're talking about an all loving if God's loving and not anyone should perish, why not the babies that die? Those are the ones that He allowed to die, the ones that weren't going to choose right. Him, and let everyone who was born be the ones who choose Him. But then God, oh well, God can't control that. 
Yeah. <laughs> that, and that's what I was saying last week is that it really makes God out to be an incredibly weak being, not worthy. He's inept. Yeah, and, he, and he is inept. inept. He's inept. He is inept. He, he's, he's, he's not all-powerful. No. Nope. You know, he's, he's not all-knowing because he had to look down the corridors yeah, time he, to yeah, see yeah. what we were going to oh, do. Oh, yeah, he had to figure out. You know, he had to figure it out. And, those, and by, the, by the way, that argument is used by, by everyone who starts moving into open theism. Uh, open theism. Yep, and we talked about that last week. Open theism, God doesn't know the future. The future is completely open, which is heretical. Look, here's the, I want to, I want to, I'll finish up with, with Owen, uh, John Owen. And if you, if you really want to read the, uh, the greatest Calvinistic book, I believe, ever written on the atonement, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ mm-hmm. by John Owen, mm-hmm. it'll make your eyes bleed. I bet it will. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it'll make your eyes bleed. I mean, Owen is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man, but it is the definitive book. And that, that was the one of the books that really hit home with me in regards to the atonement. And, and of course, John, you know, no matter what you think about John Stott, Cross of Christ, I believe that's the name of, name of his book, also that deals with the atonement, mm-hmm. a very Calvinistic book. But John Owen's book really... And I'm, I'm going to use one of his arguments that I used to all my professors in seminary, and it stumbled them. So here's John Owen. Christ in his office of high priest fulfilled the duty in praying for the elect and performing the office of priest by making an atonement for the elect. Uh, John Owen argues that to sacrifice and to intercede belong to the same office and to the same person. The ransom which the priest made is no larger than the office of the prophet, priest, and king, but these offices only apply to those who believe, his church and his elect. His ransom only pertains to them also. The atonement is his chief work as our great high priest, but that it is not his only priestly task. Christ not only died for his elect, but prays for them because in part of his special work as high priest. Just as the Levite priest prayed and made sacrifice for Israel only, Jesus' prayer was on behalf of his sheep, which was limited in number. Therefore, his priestly office of atonement was for the elect only. So, let's summarize this logical theological argument for John Owens. And and, and this is, or, or John Owens. We must admit that the Lord suffered either for all the sins of all men, or for some of the sins of all men, or third, all of the sins of some men. He did not, however, bear all the sins of all men, or all would be saved, which is contrary to fact. Nor did he bear some of the sins only of all men, or none would be saved, which is contrary to gospel. He therefore bore all the sins of some men, which the scripture asserts and which we believe. And this is the other argument. If Christ died for all men, then why do some men go to hell? That's really the question. And that's why you are starting to see people try to be consistent with that going into universalism. So I remember whenever I came into my belief system of the doctrines of grace and I brought up uh, the doctrine of limited atonement. And I had someone ask me this question. I want to hear your answer on it because maybe somebody else has, has gotten this, didn't really know what to say. And at this point, I was a new believer in the doctrines of grace. I didn't really have too much of a foundation as far as an apologetic goes for it. So the question that I got is... Is this is such a divisive doctrine that this really is not one that we need to discuss. And of course, I mean, that goes back to everything being that we have to be all complete unity, 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 uh, which I'm fine with the unity within the body. But why is this doctrine of limited atonement? Why is this so important? Why is it so vital that we have a correct understanding of it? The understanding is because we need to be theologically correct. Mm-hmm. That That's the issue. Is uh, just a plain and simple fact is that the atonement is spoken of in the Old Testament, is spoken of in the New Testament. Yes. 
And so when, when we are discussing theology, when we are discussing the gospel, when we're discussing issues regarding the atonement, we want to be as, as correct and specific as possible. I, I, don't, want, I don't want to be held, held on the day of judgment by teaching something that was theologically incorrect. Yeah. And, and I want to be, try to be as specific as possible when, when sharing the gospel. Look, it is, as I said, it's either or. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not both and it's either or. And if you, I believe that we as teachers are going to be held responsible for every, everything that we do, uh, do teach. And, and there's and a lot of things, scary. And, and there's a lot of things I'm making up for. As I said, those, those sermons, I, you know, I, I don't yeah. know, am I going to be held responsible in my ignorance? I hope not. Right. <laughs> well, 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 thankfully Christ died for that <laughs> sin as well. well. <laughs> Well, but 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 again, I, what I'm what I'm saying is is that the, the scripture does teach us that that teachers are yes. held to a higher standard. Does that mean the the church holds us up in higher standards, or does Christ Himself right. hold us at, at a higher standard? And and I, I think it's probably a little bit of both. Yeah, I agree. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that you know I'm losing my salvation over. I'm going to be sent to hell because I taught you know an Arminian view, but. I, I don't want Jesus looking at me cross-eyed neither. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well. so this uh, podcast right here, this episode is being released on Tuesday. And the following, the Sunday coming up is Easter Sunday. What? Of course, we celebrate yeah, that somebody as Resurrection told me, I, I, Sunday. I, I, I forgot we're moving into the Holy Week uh, as Palm Sunday tomorrow. Yeah, we are. And uh, so I, and the reason why I want to do the You're going to sing series, Hosanna tomorrow? I can sing Hosanna yeah, if you yeah, want me to. I know, I've heard uh, you sing. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes we're, we're at church. And uh, and I'll be sitting up there uh, on on the stage with him. I do the morning prayer, and sometimes he'll look at me, "Hey, lead music this morning." I'm like, "No," <laughs> yeah, and everybody else is going, "No, too." <laughs> yeah, but but I get up and do it. It's it's not for my own. This, this is this this is no joke. When, when our church is so small, right? And when I first got there, we we had three men in the church, and it was one Sunday. All three of them were gone. I was the only man there. <laughs> And uh, there was a guest. He's a member of the church now. By the time he was a guest, I led the music, said the prayers, and took up the offering that Sunday. I've had to do that on some Sundays whenever you're gone. <laughs> so, so, and he says, "Man, he's a one man show." <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember you. Uh, Frank was going uh, out of town. I think it was to Orlando for a conference, and I had to preach. And uh, and, and so I get there that Sunday, and it and the congregation's already small. And on on the best week possible, we're about thirty members, and yeah. then that week we had only like eleven people there. And I was like, man, I'm going to be preaching this. And I was like, it's not for you. It's not for you. You change your attitude. And so I had to do the, I had to lead the music. I had to do the morning prayer. I had to do the offering. But you know what? It got done. But uh, we are moving into Resurrection Sunday. That'll be this coming up Sunday if you're listening to this. So that's why I want to do the Tulip Series this month is because it does tie in so much with Resurrection Sunday. And to just kind of close us out, this has been a great conversation from Frank. I appreciate him coming on and discussing this with us. But really what we have to look yeah, to it's, it's good to not only be known for the sex offender guy. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Which, which you know, and I'm I want to get into that at a later date because you know I mean not not only I mean I imagine that's stuff that just just comes home with you and it's so hard to lock it away into a into that filing cabinet that is your brain. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean it's obviously a, a, a different subject. I was I was joking with um, I was joking with uh, with with I think it was you and uh, Steve uh, and I had someone one of my continuationist buddies tell me that. 
that I was going to have that I was having demons come home with me from group flying demon and babies. It could have been flying demon babies. <laughs> and I said, they, I said, well, once those demons got to my house, the other demons would scare them off. Yeah, there you go. He's talking about his four girls. <laughs> but um, but we are um, we're moving up on Resurrection Sunday, the the day that we celebrate as the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so I'm happy that the the L fell whenever it did. Uh, next week we're going to be discussing irresistible grace or effectual calling. Uh, so pretty much, um, I mean, what we have right now is that man is evil. That is what we got from total uh, total depravity or uh, total inability, radical corruption, is that we are corrupted to our core. We are affected wholly by sin, completely and totally by sin, fallen in Adam, imputed from Adam. Uh, and God, in his grace, grace and mercy, has elected unto himself a people in which he will save. And the message from this week is that Christ's death on the cross completely and definitely atone for the sins of those people. And we should praise God for that. Hallelujah. Amen. So I've enjoyed this, Frank. I completely appreciate you coming on. You only live 15 minutes from me, so you shouldn't complain too much about coming Yeah, you're coming getting on. ready to take me out to dinner. Yeah, I am getting ready to take you out to dinner. Where are we going to go? Uh, I think we're going to get some seafood. All right, seafood sounds good. So that means that I definitely got to rush off. So ladies and gentlemen, we are going to be back next week finishing up our Tulip Series for the month of April. We will be on Irresistible Grace next week, followed by Perseverance of the Saints to end the month of April. So this has been a blast. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening with us. This is James Watkins with the Five Solas Podcast, and may all that you do be done to the glory of God.